All right, our series, Once Upon a Time, is a series about a guy named Abraham. And uh, in the very first week, we talked about how God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your family, move from where you are, and go to this place called Canaan. Now, we, we know Canaan in Scripture as the promised land. This is where God's sending Abraham and his family and, and everybody connected to his family. But God also gives Abraham these four promises. He, he's like, Abraham, these are four promises that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make these all come true. Well, as we read through the story of Abraham, if you've been reading along with us over the past couple of weeks, I hope you're doing the reading with us, we kind of find that Abraham is fixated on all of these future descendants. Like everything in his mind, everything he's kind of living for is about these future descendants. Now, like we said last week, the story we're going to look at today is also 10 years from the moment that God made those promises to Abraham. And over the course of those 10 years, uh, again, as you read through that, you find that Abraham's impatient, which brings about this doubt in God and all these questions. But Abraham isn't the only one who has this impatience and doubt. His wife, Sarah, is responding in the exact same way. And as she decides, maybe it's time for us to take matters into our own hands. And so we're going to be spending our time today in Genesis chapter 16. We're going to look at the first few verses there because it's a pretty powerful story that takes place. Genesis chapter 16, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. It says, now Sarai, and again, Sarai, Sarah should become known as Sarah later. Abram is Abraham here. Abram's wife had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. Now, if you remember last week when we read through parts of chapter 15, uh, God and Abraham are having a conversation and, and Abraham tells God, hey God, because you haven't given me a son, you haven't given me a descendant yet, a child, then my servant's child, my servant's son, will actually become the heir of everything that, that I have. All right? Remember that. Now, here's Sarah who's telling Abraham, go sleep with my servant so that we can have this, this kid. What Abraham and Sarah are both doing is that they're falling back into like societal and cultural norms of that day. And we know this because of the Code of Hammurabi. Maybe you remember that when you were back in your history classes, you, you talked about this. But if you go back and you read that, if you look at that, you're going to find that these things are popping up there. In fact, the, the one that we, we have here with Sarah about the maidservant uh, and the offspring of that maidservant being the child that would then inherit whatever comes to the family, this strictly comes right from the Code of Hammurabi. And so when Sarah says, go sleep with her, we'll have a kid, we're going to fulfill God's promises, she's just reverting back to what's happening in the culture at that time. But for us, we look at that and what we understand is that really what we see with Sarah is there's this lack of trust, this lack of trust with God. Again, like Abraham, she's impatient, she, she has doubts. So the question is, how does Abraham, this man who's pursued by God, chosen by God, given these promises from God, how does he respond? Well, look at the very end of verse 2. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. Now, gentlemen, I don't care what your wife says, what she promises you, asks of you, offers you. Let me give you some of the best advice I can ever give you in my entire life. Okay, ready for this? Do not be like Abraham, all right? Don't be like Abraham. Can you, 
Can you imagine that conversation? Sarah comes to Abraham. She's like, hey, I got a plan. Abraham's like, okay, what was the plan? I want you to sleep with, the, sleep with my maidservant. Abraham's response was probably like, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear. I'll do whatever you want me to do, dear. I mean, I can only imagine what's going through his head. I, I can't understand this, right? Why would he do this? Because we can look back 4,000 years, and here's what we know. This doesn't turn out well for anybody, does it? doesn't turn well, uh, well for all, for anybody. And, and I think for us, hopefully if we had been in that spot too, maybe we could have thought through this a little bit more. But not Abraham. Well, let's see what happens here. Look at verse 3. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. So what does he do? Abraham does what his wife says. He does what Sarah says. He sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant. But hold up. That's good, right? I mean, God promised a child, and no child is coming. And so we did our own thing here. Now, Hagar is pregnant, and her heir, the child she has, is going to become our heir. I mean, this is going to be great for everyone. Here's what we did. We actually helped God out in this moment. Some of us probably have thought that in our own lives, haven't we? Well, things don't turn out well here. We already see this starting to play out because of the way Hagar treats Sarah. So she treats her with contempt. Why? Again, let's go back to culturally in that day. Hagar isn't a slave anymore. I mean, in this translation, it says that she's given as a wife to Abraham. Maybe your translation says something a little different. But whatever the case is, she's in a different plane now than she ever was. She's not low in the social system within that home. She's now in kind of this, this wife mode now within this family. So she has this similar status as Sarah. And so it changes the way that she interacts with Sarah. I mean, we can only imagine the things that happen, but I'm guessing maybe a little taunting goes on. Like, hey, Sarah, uh, you want to come feel the baby kick? I mean, you've never felt that before, have you? I wonder if she said that. Hey, Sarah, look, I'm really showing. I mean, you've never been pregnant, so you don't know what that's, that's like. Hey, Abraham, can you come over here and massage my, my shoulders because our baby is really tensing me up, and I just need a, I need a little back rub. Hey, Abraham, can you go down to 7-Eleven and get me some honey-roasted peanuts because, you know, I'm kind of craving those right now. I mean, I can't imagine anything that's happening in that home at that time. See, Hagar looks at Sarah and she doesn't see a wife anymore. She looks at Sarah. You know what she sees? She sees a slave. And then Hagar looks at herself and she doesn't see a slave anymore. She sees a wife. And here's Abraham who hopefully in this moment is thinking, like, what have I done? I can't believe I made this decision. Well, here's Sarah's response to Abraham. Verse 5 says, Then Sarah said to Abram, This is all your fault. Put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. I love this line. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Sarah's ticked. I mean, she is angry of how Hagar is treating her. But I want you to notice, who does she blame? She blames herself, right? No. She blames Abraham. She tells Abraham, Abraham, this is all your fault. And you know what? In some ways, she's actually right. 
If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, we talked briefly about this. I think it was last week. Uh, Abraham is in Canaan with his family, his entourage there, and there's a famine. And so they have to move or they have to leave that area to find food. Egypt has a plethora of food. So they head down to Egypt. When they get there, Abraham tells Sarah, like, Sarah, you're so beautiful. You're, you're so gorgeous that, that here's the deal. When we get into town, Pharaoh's going to see you and he's going to know that we're husband and wife. And he's going to come after me. He's going to try to get rid of me so he can have you for himself. So here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to lie. Sarah, you're going to be my sister when we're down in Egypt, not my wife. Well, they get down to Egypt and Pharaoh gets word of Sarah and her beauty and says, hey, let's you know, bring her to the palace here. And as soon as he does that, bad things start to happen in the palace and the Pharaoh's family. And he's trying to figure out what, what's different here. And he realizes this was Sarah and Abraham. So he starts to ask questions, figure things out. And they find out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife and not his sister. And so the Pharaoh, and I said this last week, like this national incident literally happens here because Pharaoh's like, you got to get out of town. You got to leave Egypt. And there's sort of this armed escort that I think that, that takes Abraham out and Sarah out of the place. Now, how does all this connect with, with what we're talking about this morning? Pharaoh, again, if you've been reading with us, Pharaoh basically pays Abraham to leave. It's like he pays Abraham to leave. He, he gives him supplies. He gives him crops. He gives him livestock. And oh, by the way, he gives them slaves. And guess who one of those slaves would have been? It was Hagar. She was one of those gifts. And so when Sarah says right here in verse 5, when she says, this is all your fault, guess what? In some ways, she is exactly right. Poor decisions that Abraham made 10 years earlier have now come back to this moment and this decision in their life together. When we start to think about all the bad decisions we've made in our life, I mean, how many have you made? Zero? You're lying, okay? One, still lying. Tens, hundreds, thousands. I mean, we've made a lot of poor decisions in our life. I imagine that number's pretty big. But these are decisions that we make that we look back on. And maybe we think to ourselves, I should have listened to that advice. You ever thought about that? You look back at that decision like, man, I really should have listened to that good advice I got in my life, not the bad decision that I, that I made. I should have taken the path that I knew deep down was right. I, I should have made sure that I was following God's leading in that other direction. But the struggle for us is we want to be dependent on ourselves. We don't want to be dependent on, on God. We like to do things our way. And so we end up making poor decisions. And it's not just once. It's over and over and over again. It's almost like we can't stop, right? It's almost like eating your favorite ice cream. You can't just have one little spoonful and be done. You just got to keep eating it. And it's the same way with our decisions. It's like we can't just make one bad decision and kind of learn from that. We're like, no, it's almost like we crave more and more of that. And we find that we have more and more pain in our life, more and more hurt in our life because we just can't seem to, to get beyond the decisions that, that we make. Here's the same thing is happening with Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham makes this poor decision in Egypt. And now we still find that it's leading to poor decisions now 10 years later. 
Even though God said, I got this for you, right? I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to fulfill my promises. Even though all these things are there, their humanity takes over. And Abraham and Sarah are like, we, we can do this on our own. Again, pretty much like you and, and me. But there's something else that Sarah does here, a very human response. She blames someone else for her decision. Now, internally, I know there's a lot of pain in Sarah. There's a lot of vulnerability in Sarah. I mean, she's 75 years old at this point and, and doesn't have a child. And so there's a, a struggle deep down inside of her, and she's experiencing that in her life. And so in this moment, instead of saying, well, hold up a second, I really messed up here. I'm sorry. This is my fault. She looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, this is, this is your fault. Sarah sins here, right? She sins against God. She sins against Abraham. She sins against Hagar. And, and now she's feeling the consequences of these decisions that she's made. She's feeling the consequences of that sin. And she puts that, puts that blame on Abraham and also on Hagar. Like, look what you've done. Look where we're at now. This is all your fault. Now, don't get me wrong. Abraham sins too. We find that throughout his story. He sins against God. He sins against Sarah. And here, he definitely sins against Hagar also. When you think about what Abraham and Sarah went through right here in this decision that they made and her blaming Abraham, how many times in our own lives have we made poor decisions and blamed someone else for them? Again, I'm sure it's a pretty big number. That we've made a poor decision. We've experienced the consequences from it. And instead of coming out and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up here, we blame someone else for the pain that we're feeling in our own lives. I think there's this fear that we have, this fear of, of looking deep inside of our souls. We kind of talked about this, uh, I think it was last year, we did the Creature Within series, and talked about, you know, deep down, there's some, there's some pretty nasty stuff that can be inside of us. And sometimes we keep it caged up. Maybe some of us don't have any of it, but, but it may be there. And we let it out every once in a while when it, and it shows up in these, these deep struggles that we have. It comes out. And one of the ways that, that that happens to us is that we blame other people for the decisions that we're making in our life, from the consequences of the decisions we're making in our life. We're afraid to take responsibility for our actions. We find that Sarah's doing that right now. She's blaming Abraham for what's taking place here. Well, how does Abraham respond? He's not actually much different. Look at verse 6. It says, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Here's Abraham. He's almost at the point of like, hey, I'm just going to wash my hands of all this. I'm, I'm tired of all the bickering. I'm tired of all the looks. I'm tired of the way you guys treat each other. I, I'm out of this. It, and, and, it, and if you read that, it's almost like he's saying, like, I had nothing to do with this. I, I don't know why you're saying this is my fault. I, I wasn't a part of this at all, which, you know, we had to be a part of this. So he tells Sarah, he says, Sarah, you do what you think is best because I'm done with all of this. And how does she respond to Hagar says she treats her so harshly she finally ran away. She mistreats Hagar, and that's probably not the right word. She, I'm guessing, abuses Hagar. And Hagar does the thing that she has to do. She runs to protect herself, 
and to protect this child to be. I mean, we look at these first six verses here in Genesis 16. It's a happy story, isn't it? It's pretty depressing, actually, if you kind of think about what's happening here. And again, this was over the course of probably a, a few, definitely over a few months. But, but I mean, there's a lot going on here. But, but I wonder, okay, I wonder if God had come to them and said, here is my plan and this is how all this is going to play out for you. I wonder how that would have changed this decision in their life and if it would have. Would Abraham and Sarah have been so impatient and full of doubt? full of pain and vulnerability, all these questions that they have. I wonder how they would have responded if God said, hey, here's how this is all going to play out for you. Because that's what God did, right? I mean, God gives these promises to Abraham and he says, hey, this is how this is all going to play out for you. That's not how this works. It's not how it works here and it's not how it works in our life. But you and I, we're not any different than Abraham and Sarah. We have decisions that we've got to make in our life. And sometimes they're big decisions, career, relationships, maybe marriage, finances, uh, kids, uh, physical ailments, mental health struggles, and who we are spiritually. Like there's all these decisions that we're trying to make in our life. And wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we knew all the details and God gave us all the answers that, that we needed to know? But here's what we know. It's not really the way God works. So what do we do? What do we do when God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers or moving in any sort of direction or acting in our life or what we're praying about and hoping for and, and asking for? What do we do when we're looking for direction? What do we do when it comes to making decisions in our life? Well, this morning I want to share with you these four ideas that I have found have been helpful to me and, and hopefully will be helpful to you. And I believe we see these throughout the story of Abraham and Sarah today and, and in general with their whole life. But here's the first one. The first idea is this. It's God's timing, not my timing. Now, some of you are like, well, didn't you use that last week? Can you do that? I did. But we forgot, probably, over uh, seven days. And so let me just kind of quickly hit this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, God gives the promise to Abraham. Ten years pass. Nothing seems to be happening in their life. It's another 15 years before the child actually comes. So 25 years pass. How many of us, would wait for God to act over 25 years. Not many. I pretty much would say the number's probably zero. What about 10 years? <laughs> That's a lifetime for us. We work in months maybe, weeks definitely, uh, days would be great, hours even better. That, that's how we tend to function when it comes to God's timing in our life. We don't want to wait too long. But as I said last week, God's not in a hurry. God will do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And that means it's not in your timing or my timing. It's in God's timing. Someone helped me kind of think through this uh, a few years back. They gave me a little bit of a different perspective on, on God and God's timing. They said this to me. They said, it could be that God sees and experiences all of human history at the very same time. I don't understand that. I in no way can even comprehend that. But you know what it did for me? It was like, well, hold up a second. God's timing isn't like my timing. Now, maybe God's timing isn't that way. Maybe it is. I don't know. 
But what that helps me understand that in my life, when I'm impatient and I have these doubts about where God's taking me and God's leading me, hey, hold up a second. Hey, Chad, it's not your timing that's important. It's God's timing. And so maybe that's the first place that we need to begin there. It's God's timing, not my timing. Here's the second thing I would say. God doesn't give a lot of details. Anybody ever put uh, Ikea furniture together? <laughs> Sounds like you have. Um, Last week, I talked about how renovation TV shows and networks are demonic. You remember that? I think the Swedes are demonic too, okay? I'm kidding. I'm sure there's some Swedish people here. Um, it's that furniture, right? It's the Ikea furniture. It takes forever to put together. And if you've ever done it before, we've got quite a bit in our house. It, it takes a, a lot of time. But here's the thing you can't say. You can't say that I, Ikea doesn't give you all the details, Right? You get that 55-page booklet and you open it up and it's got everything listed. It shows you every single picture. And it doesn't matter if you follow it, what you think to the T, you're always going to screw up something, especially if they're drawers. I don't know how many times I've messed up the little metal things on the drawers. But you can't say that they didn't give you all the details because they do. You may not be able to understand it fully, but at least the details are all there. I'm thinking, why can't God be more like Ikea? Why can't God say, here are all the details? Like, like here's everything. I mean, he, he doesn't do this with, with Abraham. It would be great, I'm sure, if Abraham got a promise and then God said, hey, Abraham, here's promise number one. Let me give you all the details here. Here's two details, three details, four details. I'm going to give you all the logistics. I'm going to tell you the cost. I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen. There's going to be a timeline. Any information you want, I'm going to give that to you. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Do you think that Abraham and Sarah would have lived a very different life and made better decisions? Yes, because they would have known exactly what was going to take place in their life. But that's not what God did. It's like two or three verses, maybe four sentences. God says, here's my promise, here's my promise, here's my promise, here's my promise. That's all the details you're getting. No timeline, no cost, no locations, no quantity, none of that kind of stuff for, for them. He doesn't give them any details. And you know what? That's a struggle for Abraham, for Sarah, and that's a struggle for you and me too. But why God doesn't do that? Why doesn't God give us every single detail? Why doesn't God say, here are the logistics and the cost and the timeline. And this is what I'm going to do. It. Be prepared for this. Why doesn't God do that? Because that would be pretty cool. And I tell you, that would probably be the best thing ever. But I think it goes back to last week. If God gave us all those details, where's the trust in God? Because then we'd already know the outcome. If God gives us all those details, where's our dependency on, on God? Well, we wouldn't have to be dependent on God because we already know the outcome. See, God doesn't give us a lot of the details, and we kind of struggle through that. But again, part of that is it's all about trust and dependency on God. Which then I think leads to the third idea. God wants us to wrestle with our decisions. God, God wants us to wrestle with our decisions. There's a question as a pastor, you get asked quite a bit, does God have a plan for my life? Huge question, big life and theological question. And it probably depends on sort of your background, your faith background, religious background, denominational background. Some people will say yes, okay? And maybe you follow this. They would say yes, God has your life planned out. From the time you wake up to the time you go to bed to the times you're sleeping, God has every detail. God knows everything or has planned everything out for you. 
And so you're kind of living your life and God's like, I know what the next one is because I've already got that one planned out for you. Some of you, you believe it. Totally cool, okay? Others would say that that's not quite how God works, that God doesn't have our, plan, our life fully planned out for us. And I kind of fall in this category. But God has one plan for us. And that one plan God has for all of us, for all humanity, is to follow Jesus. And then everything else just kind of falls around that one plan, okay? Now, you want to talk to me about that, debate that, we can have that conversation. That's not a problem at all. I don't think we're going to lose anything by chatting through that. But let's say, let's say for us, it's that second piece there. Uh, let's say that, that God doesn't have this, this, everything detailed out, but, but God has this one plan for us to follow Jesus. That means you and I have to make decisions. That as we live our life every day, we have to make decisions. Now, when we make decisions, especially big decisions, hopefully we're spending time just praying about it. They were praying about these big decisions in our life. And maybe they're not big, but they're, they feel big, and we pray about them. At some point, though, we have to take that step, and we have to make that decision. But how can we know if that decision's a good decision? How can we know if God is leading us in that decision? I believe there is a question that you and I have got to ask every single time. We've got big decisions in our life. And I believe it will actually change the decisions we make. Here's that question. Do I value what God values? Do I value what God values? I want you to think about poor decisions you've made in your life. Again, if you're like me, you've probably made quite a bit of them. If you had taken the time to stop and ask that one question, do you think you would have made that exact same decision that you made? Because I, I can go back and look at my life and say, if I had asked myself that question and I just kind of barreled through everything, I believe that I would have made a different decision. If I had just asked, do I value what God values as I'm making this decision? Because we go back to Abraham and, and Sarah here, their inner pain, this vulnerability that's there, leads them to do their own thing. And they don't ask this question. They, they don't ask, that, does God value what I value? Sarah doesn't ask that. Abraham doesn't ask that. They just move forward on this inner dependence they have on themselves and not any dependence on, on God. Do we ever ask that question? Do I value what God values? Because when we don't stop to ask that question, that same kind of pain and vulnerability that, that, is, that we find here with Sarah and Abraham, it will begin to influence the decisions we make. And again, we'll make poor decisions. We'll do things on our own. And we'll never ask that most important question. Am I valuing what God values? That question should lead to this wrestling match in our minds should lead us to ask, am I making the right decision? Am I doing the right thing? Am I heading in the right direction? Do I value what God values? Now, asking that question doesn't mean you're always going to make the, or answer it the right way, or make the right decision. It doesn't mean that either, but I do believe it'll help us make better decisions. I believe it'll make us make less poor decisions. And I believe it'll help us move towards what God has intended in our life. 
We're praying about this decision. We're seeking out advice and we're asking ourselves, do I value what God values as we wrestle through our decisions? And then number four, God redeems our bad decisions. Uh, culture, the world around us kind of says that um, God's maniacal, bloodthirsty, killjoy of life, doesn't want you to have any, any kind of fun. And, you know, you can look at the Old Testament specifically, and you read some of that, and like, okay, I can kind of see where you're pulling that from. But I don't think we look at the bigger picture there. We kind of get stuck on, on these a few elements. And, and if we really look deeper in the Bible and, and the Scripture, what we truly find is that God is a God of redemption. Like, it's like almost over and over and over again. Here's God who's like, hey, yeah, you know what? You messed up again, but I still love you. Hey, hey you, made, you made a bad decision again, but you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm going to bring good out of your bad. This is how God works. Now, we don't work that way. People in our lives, they, they make bad decision after bad decision. And at some point in time, we just get to a place like, I'm done with you. I don't want to deal with this anymore. You need to go figure this out. Thankfully, and I get it, there are some times you may have to push in that direction, but thankfully, that's not how God functions. That, that's not how God works. God is still there when we make those decisions in our life. Like, I'm not going anywhere. But I will say this, God lets our decisions affect our lives. It wouldn't be as much fun, or maybe it would be, if God jumped in supernaturally and changed the decision we just made. It changed what just happened in our life, changed the actions or the words. Some ways that would be great. But again, that's not how God works. God lets our decisions affect our lives. Here's Abraham and Sarah, and God's like, here, here are these promises. You're going to have this, this kid. You're going to have all these descendants. I, I've got this. I'm going to take care of this for you. They go out and make decisions on their own, and God doesn't jump in and change the story. It doesn't change the history. It doesn't change these events. God's like, all right, you need to suffer the consequences of the decisions that you have made. Here's a God who pursues Abraham, gives these promises to Abraham, continually reaffirms those promises to Abraham. Abraham continues to make bad decisions, and yet God still follows through with the promises that God made to Abraham. Because God lets our decisions affect our lives. But the beauty of all this is that God redeems me from me. God redeems us from ourselves. God follows through with those promises with love. God gives us hope in our pain, in our vulnerability, in our poor decision-making in our life. God gives us hope. And you know how I know? Because of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Because what does God do in the end? And we know how it ends. In the end, he redeems Abraham. He, he fulfills the promises that have been made to Abraham. Sarah, even in the decision-making she's done, she gets her son. Hagar is even given promises for her and her son. And we get to sit back and say, well, that's great for them. What about us? What's well, pretty big deal? We get to know that that last promise God makes to Abraham, that you will be a blessing to all people, was the gift of Jesus. And in that gift of Jesus, it is a reminder to us that God's not going anywhere. That no matter what we've done, no matter how poor the decisions may have been in our life, no matter how much pain and vulnerability there is that's deep down inside of us, God's like, hey, I still love you. 
And I'm going to show that to you through my son, Jesus. In the end, that gives me so much hope. Because even though I'm someone who's trying to follow Jesus the best that I can, I still mess up. I, I still make poor decisions. I'm still dependent on myself many times. But God says, hey, Chad, even because of that, I still love you. And from your bad decisions, I'm going to bring about good. And that good was Jesus for us. And may Jesus be that reminder that God still blesses us and loves us and leads us and guides us and gives to us and directs us, even when so often we don't deserve it, because of that gift of Jesus and that promise that was fulfilled to Abraham. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Abraham and Sarah and this reminder today that we um, can allow so much of our life to become more important to us than our dependence and trust in you. And God, as we go through our life, I mean, it's easy to be impatient and have doubts, but you love us, you care for us, you're still there for us, even, even in our sin, even in our, our bad decisions. And what do you want to do? You don't bring good out of that. And, and we know that because you sent Jesus to this earth. And so, God, as we go through this week, as decisions come, as we've got to deal with things that are happening in our life, may we be more focused on you, more patient with you, less doubt in who you are. God, as you lead us to make decisions about our life ahead. Again, thank you for the gift of Jesus for all of us. In Jesus' name.